This is the second in our series of conversations with congressional candidates for Tennessee's 5th District, running in the GOP primary on August 4th. Today we're talking to Andy Ogles. We'll be getting as many of the GOP candidates onto the podcast before the primary starts. So enjoy. I'm here with uh, Andy Ogles, congressional candidate for the 5th District here in Tennessee. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Good afternoon. Uh, so uh, tell us a bit about yourself, Andy. Where are you, where are you from? Um, what's, your, what's a bit about your background? Yeah, well, um, I grew up here in Middle Tennessee, went to Franklin High School, uh, married my high school sweetheart, uh, was an entrepreneur, successful young in Franklin, and uh, long story short, ended up in Murray County about eight years ago where I became county mayor. Great. What, what, uh, when, when did you start serving as county mayor in Murray County? It's about uh, almost four years ago now. Okay. Um, what what drew you to running for uh, the fifth di- for running for the for Congress? Well, you know, running for Congress, you know, I think what we've seen during COVID, you know, in, in Murray County, I refuse to shut anything down. Um, you know, we we refuse to com- comply with the mandates, whether it was a business mandate or the OSHA mandate, et cetera, because uh, it's free country. And uh, so during COVID, we saw overreach after overreach. And so what I want to do is take those kind of really small town 10th Amendment state rights issues to Congress and get D.C. out of our community. I like the sound of that. So what? what right. Yeah. Um, what uh, if you if you could sum up your your kind of like political flat, platform, do you have pillars that you have you've identified main issues that you're focusing on? It sounds like covid. And uh, I like the idea of uh, taking this small town ethics to D.C. That's. That sounds right. well, you know, when, when you look going forward, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, you know, when you fast forward 10 years to, to 2032, our debt levels and just just the, the interest burden alone is, is virtually unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get our budget under control. Uh, and part of that is reforming healthcare and making it uh, affordable. You know, I, I so I'm an economist by training. So, you know, we've got to look at, uh, you know, what do we do to decrease the size of the budget going forward, which is why I oppose the Ukraine uh, package. You know, I, I believe in supporting the Ukrainians and their efforts to fight for freedom. But $40 billion is a lot of money. And so what I proposed was a three to one budget cut for uh, Americans, actual budget cuts. And so as we go forward, we've got to be mindful of every dollar we spend, where we're going to cut two dollars, where we're going to cut three dollars, because our current spending levels, our current debt levels are going to bankrupt this country. And now it's become not just an economic issue where you see runaway inflation and increased food prices. You know, the projections for gas come August and in September are six dollars. Um, now it's a national security issue going forward. And we have to get this under control. Uh, our border has to be uh, you know, closed. No amnesty. Let me say that again. No amnesty. Look, if you're here illegally, I, I, I appreciate why you came. But uh, there's no amnesty going forward. Yeah. So the be- the best way that you can deal with inflation is by cutting cutting costs is what you're saying, which seems to be the primary concern of most people right now. Well, when you look historically, you know, there's been there's been several, uh, you know, in- influx or infusions of cash into the monetary system 
you know, every 10, 15, 20 years, depending on what cycles you're looking at. Japan has been a, a, under, under a state of uh, stimulus for, you know, two or three decades. Yeah. Uh, but you've never had this much money come into the economy this quickly. And so there's really no perfect formula to say, well, how do we unwind this? And so, you know, you talk about a recession. Recession is imminent. Uh, and, and the question is, can you have a soft landing? I'm not sure at this point we can. Uh, but that being said, you know, by, by getting our spending under control, um, it'll go a long way in fixing the long term problem of, of our budget and inflation on the near term. You know, price, the price of fuel is five dollars. You know, yeah. uh, just just a couple of years ago, it was two and a quarter. Um, and in some places, you, you could probably get it for a dollar ninety nine. And so we've got to be drilling. We need a pipeline here in North America and the United States. We need to be drilling in our Federal Reserves. You've got, you know, almost 2,000 oil rigs in Texas that could be pumping oil. But because of, you know, EPA regulations, about 80 percent of them are sitting idle. We, right. we can have energy independence. But what you see now is a White House that is, you know, uh, determined to push this green energy agenda, which makes us more dependent on China because of the precious metals, the rare earth metals. Right. If there's a, is there, is there any uh, immediate thing that you, you can identify where cost cutting would um, department uh, some area that you would immediately cut spending on or, or the budget of that would help with this? You're talking about for every dollar we cut $2. What, who's on your, your, uh, your bad boy list, I guess. Who gets cut first, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, you know, if this was Harry Potter, uh, you know, you get rid of the Department of Education, right? Uh, you've seen critical race theory. I mean, if there's a silver lining to COVID, it's the fact that more parents, in particular the moms, and let's be honest, let's give a shout out to all the moms, that they, they begin to hear and see in greater detail what the kids are being taught. And they're like, oh my goodness, uh, yeah. what is this nonsense? And so it kind of peeled back the layers of the Department of Education and this agenda that they've been really you know, pushing down to the states and the states have been pushing down to the locals. And so with that, you know, we got to make massive cuts to the Department of Education. We've got to get the federal Department of Education out of the states. Look, Tennessee, you know, we're not perfect, but we are a great run state. Kudos to Governor Bill Lee. But with that, we need our education to be run by Tennesseans not by someone in DC who happens to be like Nancy Pelosi from the left coast. Right. And, um, but you know, your social programs, I mean, th those are going to be painful, but uh, getting healthcare under control when you, when you look at our Medicare, Medicaid programs and the, the burden to the federal and the state governments, those, those costs have to come down. Part of that is by deregulating the industry. You know, I've never seen a problem that the government can't make worse. And that's what's happened with healthcare is governments got involved in healthcare and made it worse. And right. then when you think about the worst hospital system in the country, it's the VA hospitals. And so we know what government run hospitals look like. Right. And so why do we continue to try down this path towards a expanded Obamacare when, in fact, we need to gut the system wholly and get back to the free market? Mm -hmm. OK, sounds good to me. Um, all right. We're going to do these five questions we got. You've kind of covered some of these, so uh, it might be revisiting something we've already addressed. But sure. um, what is the greatest threat to Tennessee's ability to govern itself, to make its own decisions, essentially to states' rights? Congress, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> hands down. But, you know, again, going back to COVID, you saw OSHA, uh, CMS, 
they, you know, over overreach their authority and Congress sat by idly and let them do it. Now, I don't think any of us, any of us should be surprised that occurred when you look at the FDA, the EPA, the, the Bureau of Land Management, all of these federal agencies that have long pushed the, 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 the boundaries of their power. You know, Rahm Emanuel, Obama's chief of staff, former congressman, his famous phrase, never let a crisis go to waste. That's what happened with COVID. It was yeah. weaponized. Now, look, I'm not going to discount COVID. I had a good friend die from it. But that being said, it was used against us to take away freedom and liberty. And we have to get that back. And so the biggest threat to states' rights right now is the United States Congress, which is why I'm running to make sure that we have people up there that are going to fend Tennessee and defend the Tenth Amendment. It seems that they've started to use, uh, you know, bureaucracies like OSHA and, and Bureau of Land Management, et cetera, to enforce policies that they know that they will not pass on the federal level of some sort. It's kind of like this backdoor to, to, to undermining the rights of states. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting development. Um, next question. What is the most immediate step you can take as a congressman to ease inflation concerns? You kind of already addressed this, but. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we have uh, a White House under Biden and Kamala that'll be very much against energy independence. But, you know, cutting spending and energy independence will be the two greatest things that will most impactful. That's the near term fix, right? We have long term problems. They're going to take real budget solutions going forward. But uh, and, and oddly enough, closing the border. I mean, you know, you have a, a, a burden to the states with this influx of illegal immigrants, and I'll say that again, illegal immigration coming into this country. We've got to shut down the border. We've got to let everybody that that wants in understand that you have to come in lawfully. And if you don't, there are penalties because of it. But by becoming energy independent and getting pr the price of fuel down to Two fifty in the three dollar range now becomes more sustainable going forward. I was just—I'm a nerd. I apologize, but I was just reading an analyst report talking about grocery stores, where you now have ch chains like Kroger that are pushing back against suppliers and re trying to negotiate and hold back the price increases because come October you're going to see a massive spike in the cost of food. Mm -hmm. And so now we see August, September, you're going to see a massive spike in the price of gasoline, nearing six dollars. Again, as an economist, what I can tell you, what happens is those costs move through the economy and come October and Thanksgiving, you're going to see a massive spike in food to the point that Walmart and Kroger can no longer cut a penny here and a penny there to keep their price points where they are. A lot of our the grocery stores, even how you buy a car, are very price point driven. And so your, your, your big boxes try to hold those price points steady. Well, they're getting to the point where the dam is about to burst and they're no longer going to do that or be able to do that. And the American consumer is about to take it on the chin. Yeah, I was reading some comments from farmers that say that the consumer doesn't see, doesn't feel the impact of these price increases for 18 months. It takes kind of 18 months for, you know, diesel price increases, fertilizer price increases, et cetera, to hit the market. So. Well, we have a small farm, and so we spent the weekend doing fencing, and the price of fencing materials, uh, just for our little operation, cost me about uh, you know, 40% more than it did just a year and a half ago. Wow. And, and, and so that's a huge increase. Yeah. Now, fortunately for us, you know, that's not our livelihood. And so I'm not having to, you know, to pass those costs on to a consumer, but those, those dollars are coming directly out of our pocket as a family which then affects our discretionary income, 
right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, a package of fencing, fencing that may have cost me, you know, $1,600 is now costing me, you know, do the math, right? Several hundred dollars more. Well, guess what? That's a pizza. That's going to the movies. That's a Starbucks. Those are things that otherwise would have gone back into the economy, but they're my, they're out in a pasture in the form of fencing, right? Yeah. Now imagine that you're a big producer, whether it's wheat or corn or beef or whatever, that 40% increase is, is going to hit Kroger and Walmart and everybody else. Right. Right. All right. Well, next question is over the next year, how should the U.S. approach Russia, Ukraine? Well, I think when you look at foreign policy as a whole, we have to uh, empower uh, Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan to defend themselves. So when you look at the Ukrainian situation, it's a complex situation. Uh, back in 1994, there was a treaty between uh, Russia, France, United States, that if they would denuclearize, they had almost 2,000 nukes. And there were some, some concerns about whether or not they could keep those nuclear weapons secure. But then also have a, have the scientific wherewithal to maintain them because you just don't build a nuclear weapon and put it on a shelf. It's got to be maintained, right? So they do denuclearize, and then they receive security insurances from the West, if you will, and Russia. Now, going forward, does that mean that we send troops into Ukraine? Absolutely not. So now we can jump to Taiwan and Israel to see what is our relationship there because it's similar in that they are, you know, they're a state that wants to be free. Ukraine is a buffer state to our NATO allies to the West is, you know, currently in Taiwan, about 1.9% of their spending is on defense. But we need to encourage them to ratchet that up to, say, 5% and equip them so that they can defend themselves, so that they can leave from a, a position of deterrence. Because, you know, China won't make the same mistake that Russia made. You know, they'll wake up one morning and they'll be speaking Chinese, right? I mean, it's just going to happen. Boom. Right. And so and then you look at Israel and our relationship with Israel. We've long, long given military aid to uh, Israel. But keep in mind, 75 uh, percent of those dollars have to be spent on American military equipment and armaments. And so we should be doing the same thing with Taiwan and Ukraine and making sure that those dollars are being spent in the way that we're being told they are being spent. And then, of course, like we said in the beginning of this conversation, is if we're going to give Ukraine a billion, then we need to cut two or three billion. If we're going to give Taiwan an extra billion, we need to cut two or three billion. And, and, and let's be honest, you know, if Mexico was lobbing rockets into, you know, Houston, we would defend ourselves, right? So it's, it's it's rightful to think that the Ukraine or Taiwan or Israel is going to want to defend themselves. How do we go forward as a partner without engaging our men and women, our, our, our sons and daughters? Right. As, as far as uh, as far as Ukraine, Russia goes, uh, do you think it uh, would you push for a do you think it's crucial that we find a nonviolent resolution as soon as possible? Or do you think, you that- know, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's our business to tell the Ukrainians how to govern themselves if they want to fight for freedom then that's their choice, right? right. It kind of goes back to the Mexico-Houston analogy. You know, we have a right to defend ourselves. Now, if they want to negotiate, then that's on them. Of course. Uh, but, you know, uh, same thing with Israel. We have long kept a muzzle on Israel uh, in their own national defense, and it's time to let Israel be Israel and defend itself uh, from aggressors. I mean, there, sure. was, there was a six-day war. They won. In my mind, there is no disputed territory. Israel won. And, and so why we keep putting this political shell game with Israel and forcing them into hostile 
conflicts with their neighbors because we simply won't let them be do what we would do otherwise. Right. Right. We're going to defend ourselves. We're going to push the aggressors out and we're going to say this is our home. Ukraine and Israel have the right to do the same thing. Great. Okay. Next question. What is the biggest threat to parents' ability to manage their children's own education? That goes back to the state's rights issue, Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, I think um, the Department of Education is really has always been a threat. I mean, let's think, think of it from a practical standpoint from the state of Tennessee. You think of what's the job market in Shelby County? What's the job market uh, around Jackson, more rural uh, Tennessee versus Nashville, which is becoming its own little Silicon Valley, if you will. So even within our own state, the education system might look differently depending on what, what jobs are available and what they need to train the, the kids up to become. Now you zoom out to the national level and you have Silicon Valley, you have the cornfields of Iowa, the oil fields of Dakota, to you name it, right? It's a, we have a very diverse country. And there's no way that the U.S. Department of Education can can create this one size fits all education system. It's just not going to work. And it hasn't been working, period. I mean, even in the state of Tennessee, as great as Tennessee is, only 25 percent, 25 percent of our kids read on grade level. That's K through 12. Only 25 percent of our kids do math on grade level. Again, that's K through 12. And so we've got to get D.C. out of our education system. We've got to get D.C. out of our healthcare system. And until we do that, we're continually setting ourselves up as a state for failure. But then also our parents, as they're trying to manage their own health care, manage their children's health care, and ultimately manage their children's education and their children's future. All right. Last final question. What do you think most undermines trust in the voting process? Well, I mean, election integrity, I think, is a huge issue. I think this last election, you know, we can have a debate as to whether or not the election was stolen. But what's not debatable is the fact that there was rampant fraud. And what concerns me in this process or in that topic is they can't tell us how much fraud. You know, they can't do an actual audit. You've got the movie from Dinesh D'Souza, The 2000 Mules, which shows, proves that there was massive fraud. So we've got to secure our elections. In the same way, we have to secure our border because without a secure border and secure relations, we're truly not a nation. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got, Andy. Uh, anything you want to add? You got a, a campaign website, I guess. You know, you've, you're on social media or something like all yeah. over, right? Um, yeah, go to andyogles.com. My name's Andy Ogles. So I'm running for Congress and I'm asking for your vote. Andyogles.com. Great. Any events coming up that you're going to be at? Any forums? Um, or- yeah, there, there's lots of things going on. I don't have my, my calendar in front of me to 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 okay. whittle them off to you. Sorry. All right. Well, uh, Andy, thanks for talking. Uh, enjoyed seeing sure. you. I'll see you around. All right. Have a good Thank rest you. Of your day. Yep. You as well. Bye.